There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's a pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest today is Kim Borchers. Kim is the president and owner of Bird Dog Recruitment and Consulting. Her firm focuses primarily on placement of senior talent at the highest levels of state and federal government, along with management development. Before opening her firm, Kim was the executive director of leadership development at a national think tank, the Foundation for Government Accountability, where she created and launched the organization's Talent Bank Project. Kim has spent 20 years in the grassroots movement funding pornography in her public library. She also served as Deputy Chief of Staff for Kansas Governor Sam Brownback and currently serves as Republican National Committee Woman for the great state of Kansas. Kim Borchers, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. I'm pumped to spend some time with you today. Pumped. I love that. I'm pumped, too. We haven't used that word before, so I, I love the excitement. So, Kim, you started your career in the healthcare sector, but quit a high-paying corporate job to try to change local policies that you opposed. Take us back to that time. What compelled you to get involved instead of just leaving it to someone else? So, Chris, to be honest with you, um, why I stayed home originally was to stay at home with our very first child. Um, I was traveling 80% of the time. My husband's a family practice doctor. He was starting his practice. And I missed her first tooth, her first step, and her first rash. And I'm like, you know what? This was not my idea of starting a family. And it was by accident that I fell into this. I was listening to a radio program and it was talking about um, public libraries and pornography access for kids. And I thought, you know, I live in the Bible Belt. There's no way this is happening in my local community. And um, that's how it all started. And the rest is history. And how hard was that decision for you? And what were you able to accomplish? Um, you know, what was interesting, it was making the very first phone call. And so I called the library director and I can tell you, having in my corporate world been negotiating multi-million dollar contracts with integrated healthcare systems, I was kind of getting the, okay, little lady, you know, you don't have to worry about this. And I thought, okay, I'm going to let you get through the renovations on the library and then we'll follow up. Um, but I, I did a follow-up letter to the director of the library at that time. And I copied my local legislator. And it was a year later that she showed up on my front porch step. Her name was uh, Becky Hutchins. Her husband was also a family practice doctor. And um, we began to strategize on what was happening in the state of Kansas and why things were, were occurring or why, why this was an issue. And um, was able to partner with her and learn the process, what works, what doesn't. And um, I'll be honest with you, we are still battling that particular um, law, which is an affirmative defense clause in Kansas statute for harmful to minors that does not hold public schools and public libraries accountable. And um, before I die and leave this earth, that law is going to be changed. But in working for Governor Sam Brownback, there were other areas that we could take on the Children, Children's Internet Protection Act. We incorporated that into the state of Kansas. It was associated with E-rate funding. And um, I remember the day that I walked in, Chris, to my former boss, and he said, Kim, I signed, I signed your bill into law. 
And um, I could never have been happier to have been working for someone who cared as passionately also about that issue and cared about kids because he had he had done a lot of hearings um, on the Hill regarding pornography and its addictive nature. What's it feel like to have a governor say, Kim, I signed your bill? I mean, that's pretty cool. Cool. It's kind of cool. Right. I mean, I didn't grow up in politics. I mean, and so just the honor of being able to work on a senior staff and to work for someone as honorable as Sam Brownback. Um, I know even to this day, when I go to Washington, D.C., when people find out that's who I worked for, they're like, I, I didn't necessarily agree with him all the time, but man, what a good human being. And I'm like, exactly. And I don't believe in cloning, but I would clone him for Washington. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> You spent 20 years in that movement, but I understand that as a result of your early activism, you ended up with a job you would have never expected to do. Did you feel like you were prepared to be a radio host? And how was your program received? Well, absolutely not prepared. Uh, as I shared with you before we even started our program, I remember when I called my husband and told him, I said, I've been offered a radio show. And, and he said, honey, they know you don't know what you're doing, right? And I said, I'm taking the job. That's what I'm going to do. Um, you know, this was really before social media. So talk radio was a big deal. And it was one of the outlets that I had utilized in informing the public as to the work that we were doing at the Capitol on this particular piece of legislation. And so the funny thing was, is one time I was at the grocery store and I was checking out and there was a gentleman behind me and he said, your voice sounds really familiar. And I go, oh, and he goes, are you on the radio? And I said, yes. And he goes, you're the lady who took an hour of Mike and Mike away from me. And I said, guilty. I'm so sorry. He goes, well, you're kind of entertaining too. I said, well, I'll take that as a win. So that's, it was, it was a fun time. Uh, I did that for a year and I got pregnant with our third and the radio station was so gracious. They wanted to put a studio in our house. Um, but the show that I ended up doing over time, I had a, a colleague who we would just banter and it was going to be really hard to have the same, you know, dynamics when I'm like at home and I can't see him. Um, so I, I said, you know what, Steve, we'll, we'll let you take this baby and run with it. But it was a phenomenal year. I just, I was, it's one of those things where it's like, you could never have told me I would have done radio for a year. Well, have you thought about going back now with Zoom or Microsoft Teams or something like that? You know, I mean, you've, you've got this cleverly done here. It's like, I got to have someone else run it for me and so forth. So who, who, who knows what I'll do? <laughs> I'm always open. Well, I'd like to recommend uh, one of our engineers, Aaron, but he's, uh, depends on days, if I like him or not. So I think today's a good day for him. So if you think about it, let me know. We'll hook you up. Okay. Thanks, Chris. We have I a love-hate relationship, which my listeners and viewers know. I had to throw him under the bus on that one. So Kim, as your kids got older, you could have gone back to the corporate setting, but you remained in politics and policy issues. Why was that? You know, it's, um, that's a really great question. Um, I think what I found through staying at home for 11 years is um, a lot of time to contemplate where I wanted to spend the next season of my life. And um, purposeful work. Um, I loved my job in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I sold a wonderful product. I worked with lots of amazing physicians across the country. But what I realized is where my heart and passions were was in my own backyard and where I felt like I kind of found my, my niche and I could make a difference. Um, I would also say this. Um, 
the idea of being able to work for a governor where literally I was, I could get in my car and I was five minutes away from my kid's school and I could drive down and I could still be a room mom. And if my kids were sick, um, I had my kids sleeping underneath my desk or at the end of the day, I could pick them up and had them in a room next to my office while, you know, I still had my duties for the governor. And so it just, it was, um, it met my family needs, but it also met where I think my passions and my why existed. And uh, I'm so grateful for that 11 years of being at home to to have found that. You know, not many people get to find their why. And so it's just nice to hear you did and you just relished in it and just ran with it. So I, I love hearing that. So three things in the show we typically don't talk about are politics, gun control, and abortion. Uh, but this year being presidential election, uh, it's hard to, to avoid it. You know, and with that said, there often seems to be the sense that Washington, D.C. should solve all our problems. Or maybe the answers are with someone else at the state level. What does it take to get people to shift their attention away from Washington, D.C. and their state capitals to take more control in their own communities? You know, Chris, that's a wonderful question. And I I had hoped one of the silver linings in COVID was that people would wake up and stay awake. And unfortunately, um, you know, I remember through COVID, you couldn't show up at a county commission meeting and it was standing room only. And now when I show up at a county commission meeting, it's like me and a couple staffers. And I laugh when the commissioners see me, they'll say, and public comments. And they'll kind of look at me and I'm like going, I'm not here to say anything. I said, I'm just checking on you. I want to see what's happening when, when no one else is watching. Um, and so I think it falls on us um, to really be connected in our communities, right? And give people the why of why they should care about these things. And that takes work. Um, one of the things that I'm doing as a precinct committee person in my area is I have downloaded every single Republican voter in my precinct, and I'm sending them a postcard, um, letting them know that their vote matters. Now, I'm having that printed on my own dime, that is getting mailed on my own dime, but the reality is is in our local election, I looked, only 20% of of my precinct showed up for a school board election. And yet, I'm certain all of those people had an opinion about the schools being closed, but yet when it came to the school board, right, um, they didn't show up. And I'll also um, verge off a little bit on this because I think part of it is, is the, I think people have a disconnect as to what some of these things and how they impact them, right? You, we learned very quickly who the decision makers were in closing your business down. Um, you learn very quickly on who this public health officer is and who they report to, right? Um, but I was sitting, I had, I had coffee with a really great guy a few weeks back. It was after the election and he's a banker very smart. And I asked him, I said, well, did you vote in the local election? And he kind of sheepishly looked at me and I knew what he was going to tell me, which was no. And he goes, well, you know, my kids are in private school. You know, you know, I just, I'm not really concerned about that. He goes, but I did vote for the bond issue. And I looked at him and I said, how do you think the bond issue got on the ballot? He goes, how? I said, the school board members. And this is a really smart guy. So I think we have to do a better job educating people as to what local government looks like and how these decisions are made and how these things get on the ballot. And that's, that's all about civic education. Well, maybe as a follow-up to that, I imagine you hear plenty of people saying, I already have too much going on in my life between work and the kids to soccer practice and Little League games, taking care of the house, trying to get some my own relaxation in. 
what do you say to them to get personally invested? You know, what's in it for them to be civic leaders? Mm-hmm. Well, I would first of all start off with, I don't think everyone's going to be a civic leader, but I think we can all be civically engaged, right? If everybody wants to lead, we're going to have problems, right? Um, but I think part of it is, is just having open conversations about what people care about. And then when you find out what people care about, it's like, well, how do you ensure that that's going to happen for your family and connecting the dots? And I'm a firm believer that you need to build the well before you need it. And that's what I'm really trying to encourage people to do. I know that not everyone's wired like I am. My boss used to tell me that. He goes, Kim, not everyone's wired like you. <laughs> I'm like going, well, thank goodness. We'd really be in trouble. <laughs> um, but I, I think what we have to realize is that civic engagement does not mean you have to run for office. Civic engagement doesn't mean you have to go out and hit a grand slam. Um, I think civic engagement is seeing ourselves almost like we're gardeners in our community and we plant and we water and sometimes we reap. And you have to figure out what you're going to be in your local community. And that just comes from open conversations. Um, And I'll be honest with you, Chris, I knew a lot on the Fed side. I knew a lot on the, the state side, but it was COVID that got me really, really educated locally you know, on home rule order, or if you have a Dillon rule in your, in your area, in your state, I mean, all of these different things. So now I'm sure the go- local government guys are like going, oh my gosh, we had her at the state. She's at the state house. Now she's here to bother us. So, here comes Kim again. <laughs> here comes Kim. You mentioned a few minutes ago about voting percentages in local government school board elections. You know, they're dismal. Now yours is 20%, which is pretty high. You know, they're typically usually around 10 to 12% maybe. Mm-hmm. Why are so many voters disengaged from the government closest to them? I think, um, well, first of all, let me say that was 20% from my precinct. If you looked at the entire district, it hit the numbers that you hit, right? Um, I think it's going to go back to, I think people have lost a sense of agency. I think they have, they believe this idea of what's my one vote? How can it make a difference? And um, you and I are both familiar with someone, right, who, who you know very well, who worked for someone who was a congresswoman, and she won by six votes. Six votes. I was just going to mention um, that. I mean, I lost my local school board race when I ran several years ago. My goodness, it's getting longer and longer. Um, but I lost by five votes. By the time provisional ballots were counted, I was down by five. And I jokingly tell everybody, I am the poster child for every vote counts, but I made assumptions that if someone had my sign in their yard, that they voted. And when I went back and could look at the poll books back in the day when they were paper, um, I had a family that had six voters in there that did not vote that day. And when I asked them, they said, well, you had signs everywhere. So I thought for sure it was a win. And so this is how I help people who run for office. I said, if someone has a sign in their yard, they're going to get an advanced ballot application in their hands and they're going to make sure that they vote. Um, So I just, I I think everything is about the way you campaign. Is it hopeful you let people know that their vote matters at the end of the day? Vote, your vote counts. And we can't disregard that. How do you define civic leadership? You know, do I have to be the mayor of my community or city council member to be a civic leader? No. So if you take a look at the root Latin word civics, it means the study of 
the duties and responsibility of a citizen. And so if you look at, let's go to civic engagement. So once you know what your duties and responsibilities are, how do you engage? And then some of that engagement will ultimately lead to leading. So no matter what you're passionate about, right? Um, it could be, and you and I talked a little bit about this, it could be the issue of sex trafficking. Where do you take the lead on that? Um, the, the gal who started um, our anti-sex trafficking home here in Topeka, Kansas, she had no background in this whatsoever. She, she had been, and Mary Kay was a saleswoman, had been very successful in that. Her husband is a prominent business owner here, but she had a heart and a passion of what was happening in our local community. I would say she is a civic leader on this issue. I have the privilege of serving on that board. Um, but she and I had kindred spirits because I know that one of the major drivers for sex trafficking is the internet. And you look at the pornography that's available. Many of the women who are in those things on the pornographics areas or on these sites, they're trafficked women. So I, I think leadership, I think sometimes you just end up there. It's not like you walk in and go, I'm going to be a civic leader on, you know, Human sex trafficking, it wasn't that. And so um, I think it's just making yourself available, looking at what the needs are, but you have to be present. You have to show up. It seems like there are as many reasons or even excuses for voter apathy as there are voters. Mistrust in government, people are just too busy, polarization between the parties, negative campaigning, flawed candidates, biased media coverage, the list goes on and on and on. What do you believe the reason or reasons are for voter apathy? Oh, boy. What do I think the reasons are? You hit on all of them, right? Um, I think it goes back to what I said. I think people think their vote doesn't matter. And I got to tell you, as elections are getting closer and closer, it, every vote counts. I mean, as I've traveled across the state as national committee woman, um, election integrity gets brought up all the time. And um, as I am stepping away from my role, so I'll be I'll be handing my crown off to somebody else at the end of in July at the end of the convention. I've been a little bolder in pushing back on things because this is what I tell people. I said, let me guarantee you one thing: the one vote that will not count is the one that is not made. And um, I've also have the philosophy. You've probably heard this too. It's like if you didn't vote, I don't want to hear you complain. Right. We have control. If you don't like who is representing you, then you need to vote. Um, but the number of times that people complain about things and I ask them if they voted and they didn't. And I'm going, OK, I'm holding my ears. I'm not listening anymore. <laughs> my wife says that all the time. She's like, you can complain all you want, but show up at the voting booth. Yeah. In other words, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. And you mentioned negative campaigning. I know everybody says they hate it. But the data shows it works. I, I don't like it, right? Can, I mean, but it's like a podcast. You know, who, who listens to the warm, fuzzy, things are good? No, everybody, it's like they want to be angry about something. It's like it's what drives them. So, I mean, you look at the headlines, and there's nothing that drives me crazier is a headline that does not go, is not correlated with the story. I get done. I'm going, are you kidding me? I fell for that sucker. <laughs> um, but it's, I think that's part of the problem is that we say we want one thing, but we respond to something different and we've got to get that figured out as Americans. Um, so it falls on us. 
right? We have agency. You have agency. What role do you think the way campaigns are financed plays into voter discontent? Um, I think, so I'm going to go, I'm going to expand it a little bit. I was never a um, term limit supporter, but I'm a term limit supporter. And I say that having ran a campaign for somebody and I had a really solid guy and the number of checks that we couldn't get because he wasn't the incumbent. And I know the person who this person was running against. It's actually, they were, it's our now current governor who was a senator back then. Um, but she had to spend a quarter of a million dollars against my guy who we only raised 45,000. Um, but, but I do think, I mean, we put term limits on the president. We put term limits on governors. We put, you know, some states have term limits for their legislature. Um, I do, I do think it lends itself to have people go, well, I, you know, that person has name recognition. And at the end of the day, how, I mean, we're not going to be able to make a dent in that. And I think we're missing some really talented people out there who could bring a lot to the table. Um, and so I, I think it's not so much changing how things are financed. It's just let's put term limits on people. And, and then this is what I would put term limits. And then at the federal level, you cannot come back and lobby for 10 years. Seems reasonable. That, that's 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 where I would go. I think it's is it one year, two years now. It's very minimal. Minimal. <laughs> I think it's one year actually. Minimal. <laughs> so, what are the consequences of widespread public apathy towards the electoral system for democracy, our communities, and our country? Um, I think it's when. I, I think ultimately we will use we will lose democracy if we continue with being apathetic. Um, I think apathy also comes from something, and I'm a bit of a straight shooter, Chris, which kind of gets me into trouble. I, my my boss used to go, he'd ask me a question, I go, "Do you want me to be honest?" And he would say, "No, I want you to lie to me, Kim." I'm like, "Okay, Governor." <laughs> um, I think when you are comfortable, right? is when you can become apathetic. And I, like I mentioned, COVID. COVID put us out of our comfort zone because guess what? There, I mean, lives changed. You were having to educate your kids at home. You couldn't go to work. You couldn't travel. Um, you couldn't see your loved one. Um, so we got really uncomfortable and that moved us to make changes. Um, it, it's, I am concerned with what I see in our country today with voter apathy. Um, I went back and I was looking at some historical things, especially on Germany. You, you take a look at how is it possible that a country like Germany, where some of the brightest minds in the world came from, they had the best educational system, great arts, very highly cultured. And what you had is you had really bad policies that started imp getting implemented and it harmed them economically and from a military perspective. And so then you had people accepting and adopting things that they normally would never, ever have done. And that's what concerns me in our country today. And so I think voter apathy, if you don't understand the greatness of this country and where we have come from, does not mean we are perfect because we are not, because we're human beings. But if we miss out on all that, that's where we will lose democracy. 
Do you see technology playing a role in improving modern civic leadership? Oh, it could. But right now it's terrible. I jokingly tell people, I'm like, I'm of the mindset I would adopt dueling again. Let's put dueling back in. And then <laughs> then social media would change, right? Think about these people who talk smack all the time. I'm like, going, if someone challenged you to a duel, I don't think you'd say that. So um, I think there are so many great things that can happen with social media and just technology being able to reach people in ways that we've never been able to reach them before. And also the fact, think about when you are engaging. I mean, you've got 18 year olds all the way to 100 year olds, right? 18 year olds don't read the mail, but unfortunately they're on social media. So, um, yeah, it's how do we find that balancing act? You were part of a civic leadership program that came up with an ingenious idea to get military spouses and out-of-state college students involved in the electoral system and address a national shortage. It's an idea that I think every state should adopt. What is it and how does it work? Well, Chris, thank you so much. Um, essentially, what I found out when we were, I had women in the civic leadership engagement program, one of the things that we do is you volunteer to be a poll worker. And all of these women kept coming back saying, I cannot be a poll worker. And I said, well, why is that? And at first, my first thought was, oh, the feds. And they said, no, the state law here says that if I am not a, a um, registered voter where I'm living, that I cannot be a poll worker. I cannot volunteer. So I took a look at my Kansas law and found that it's the exact same thing. So like I said, I'd been digging a well for 20 years. I found the legislator who I, I, I love him. He's wonderful, Representative Pat Proctor, and he's former military, and he runs the election committee. And I said, Pat, what do you think of this idea? He said, wow, I never would have thought of that. So basically, we have a piece of legislation that's running through the Kansas State House right now. I introduced the bill two weeks ago, and I did testimony on, at committee um, last week that essentially will allow um, the law to be changed, that if you are a military person or a military spouse, that even though you are not registered to vote here, you would be able to volunteer to be a poll worker. Um, and the same thing for college students. So uh, Virginia has the same law as Kansas. My son is registered to vote in Kansas. He goes to school at Liberty University. I am sure Lynchburg, Virginia needs people to help work polls, but my son can't because he's a registered voter in Kansas. So we're we're, we're moving that legislation along, and I'm hopeful that we will get that passed, and it's something that could be used as model legislation across the country to really, it's not going to be the silver bullet for our poll workers, but at least it's a tool in the tool chest for our election commissioners and clerks. Makes complete sense. It's something so simple. I know. I know. Well, if it makes sense, it doesn't pass. No, I'm <laughs> exactly just right. I'm being Unfortunately, it makes you're right. Sense. <laughs> That's too logical, Kim. We can't do that. I know. Stop being logical. You've been involved with a group called the Policy Circle, co-founded by our mutual friends, Sylvie Legere. What is the Policy Circle? What is its mission? And how did you become involved? So the Policy Circle, it's a nonpartisan grassroots organization that provides really a framework for women um, to boost civil discourse and civic engagement. Um, and it's a proven platform for how we can develop leaders in our communities. So where we're adopting solutions on policies that foster real creativity and personal responsibility. And I got connected, actually. Um, I met Sylvie via a connection. Somebody said, oh, you need to talk to this lady. And I was a guest speaker in Chicago back in 2018, um, specifically on demystifying boards and commissions, because a lot of people don't know, how does it work? How do I get on a board or a commission? And so I was a guest speaker there, and Sylvie and I continued to work together and create 
this um, program called the Civic Leadership Engagement Roadmap, which is really about helping women navigate locally and to kind of dip their toe in to find out what their passions are, where they can make a real difference in their communities. So it's been, I, I love it. It's a national network and it's a great way for iron to sharpen iron. I love that. And how can others get involved in the policy circle? Well, I can encourage you, you can go to thepolicycircle.org and you can, that's our website, and you can go there and find out ways to become a member of the organization or to sign up for CLEAR, which I'll be your Sherpa for three months if you do that. Um, And there's some other, there's other membership benefits that you have being a part of the program. And the brief conversations that we have on public policy are wonderful. It runs from mental health to public safety, to foster care, to you name it, to international foreign policy issues. So it is, it is just a treasure trove of great conversations for us to sit in a civically way, in a civically minded way and a civil way to discuss these issues where they can be fruitful. And it's a treasure trove of powerhouse women like yourself. Uh, I've been blessed, as I mentioned, you know, to become friends with Sylvie. She's been on the show. She's had me on her podcast. And I've actually tapped into that network just to have unbelievable women uh, Mm -hmm. doing all kinds of unbelievable things out there. One of the things that I like to focus on the show, uh, we mentioned before the show, is a couple of different issues that I like to draw attention to. Um, my listeners know we do a lot on mental health, on anti-human trafficking, but also for me personally, I was an only child raised by a single mom. So women in leadership is something very important to me. Uh, so appreciate all the work that you've done in your community uh, over the years. So thank you for that. Well, Chris, you know what I always tell people? I'm in a very fortunate position and um, I'm, there's some words that have been hijacked, right? And the word privilege is hijacked. When you have privilege, you're supposed to do something with that privilege, And I feel like I have been gifted with the privilege to be able to do some things that maybe some other moms can't because of the situation that they're in. Um, That was my big issue on pornography. A lot of mamas were working three jobs. And so I wanted to make sure that the public library was actually a safe place for their kids to go to. And if I could do that for them, that was a way for me to give back to my community. Kim, you've described the COVID pandemic as an eye opener for many people, including yourself. Mm-hmm. In what way did the pandemic open your eyes and change your mindset? Oh, boy. Um, it opened my eyes to how much control is given to folks who are non-elected. And something as powerful as shutting your business down or shutting your school down. And I, I think it's really important that at the end of the day, that those decisions are being made by elected officials, not by bureaucrats. It's not that you don't take into consideration the specialization of the people who are advising you. But at the end of the day, the call is made by the elected official, not, not by someone who I don't have any influence over, who at the end of the day also is not going to return my phone calls because he doesn't have to. But if you're elected... Um, need to do that. And I would, uh, let me just stress this, thoughtfully reach out to electeds, right? I mean, I tell people, if someone showed up on your front porch step and told you you were stupid and an idiot and you didn't know what you were doing, you would probably shut the door, right? I mean, it's, you get a lot further with honey than vinegar. And it's not that you can't be passionate or you can't be firm. Um, and I'll just say this, Chris, I haven't mastered this. I am a work in progress. I mean, there are days that I'm going, okay, I probably should have said that a little differently. <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to burn a bridge. I need to go back there. Um, 
But I, I do believe that this is about coalition building and uh, creating an environment where you are persuading people your direction. And, and I'll tell you, Chris, I started Facebook Lives. I'd never done Facebook Lives before COVID and started doing that because I wanted to be almost a source of information for people because they did not know what to do and where to go. And it didn't matter what side of the aisle people were on. I mean, I had friends that were Democrats who were calling me, asking me, can you please help my dad get his unemployment? And I'm going, do you know who you're calling? We're not in charge over the, the, you know, the governor's mansion. Um, but, you know, I was honored by that, actually, that they're like, OK, I trust her. I know she's able to navigate through this. How could she be helpful to me? And uh, we started a show called The Michael and Kim Show. It's a buddy of mine who he actually interned from. He was an economist. And so we were doing data and we were sharing that with people all through COVID and uh, holding elected officials and bureaucrats accountable for their actions based on what the data actually showed. So, I mean, it's amazing. People were hungry for it. That's where, that's where technology mattered. Yeah, absolutely. And in response to the pandemic, we know has been extremely divisive. People in politics used to talk about the pendulum of public opinion or public policy. Civil discourse was part of the process not so many years ago. People from different parties could disagree without being disagreeable and compromise to get things done. Has the pendulum swung so far that civil discourse is a thing of the past, or is there a way for civil discourse to make a big comeback? So this is this is knowing your history, right? I think we have we have Norman Rockwellized our founding. So if you go back, there's a really there's another podcast I love listening to. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called History That Doesn't Suck. Have you ever heard that podcast? No, I haven't. Okay, you got to listen to it. It's fantastic. If you go back and listen to this, and what they do is it's story form of just kind of original writings and things that were captured. We had this same tension back at the founding. The difference is we now have technology, right? You know, before you had to put someone on a pony and they had to, you know, ride their horse how many days in order to get a story to someone. And now someone just has to get on here and be a, you know, a keyboard warrior. Um, but I think the difference was, and there's a great, there's a, a great speech that Benjamin Franklin gives on the floor after they have passed um, the constitution. And he says, what I'm saying here and what I've disagreed upon here is, is going to stay here. I'm going to go out and leave this building. I'm going to support this because this is the only way that we're going to be able to keep this country together. All of those losses, all of the lives, um, all of the homes, all of your property that have been lost through this. If we don't come together in this way, then we don't stand a chance. And I think what we need is we need leaders who are willing to say, I'm going to come to the table recognizing I'm not going to get everything I want. But there's a higher purpose here, right? It's love of country. It's love of this United States of America. It's not perfect, but man, it's the closest thing we got. And I always tell people, people don't die to leave here. People die to get here. And if we're so bad, right, this is what I say to people who want to criticize this country so much in this country. If we're so bad, why are people dying to get here? It's because we are the greatest country in the world and it doesn't matter what zip code you've been born in or who your parents are. You have the opportunity to get to a next station in life if you work hard enough, 
with certain limits, right? Based on your natural skill or based on your intellect or whatever. And you don't have that in other places. So I, I think it's going it, to, it means good people have to step up and lead. I tell this all the time to business owners who will tell me something. And I'm like, well, why, why don't you run and go, well, why would I deal with all those idiots? That's what they tell me. I'm going, okay, this is why we won't solve anything. If good people won't make sacrifices to go and serve, then we will continue with these problems. And so I think love of country over comfort, that's the only way this is going to change. And um, yeah, it's that bright shining light on the hill. I mean, it's, it, it is the greatest country in the world. And yes, we are not perfect. Um, but like you said, it's the best thing that's out there and it's worked for 236, seven years, wherever we are now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But maybe as a follow Kim, where did we go wrong? Why are people so angry and divided today? Uh, it's how people have made money. I mean, I'll be honest, right? It's all about clicks. I spoke to someone yesterday who made the comment, well, if you did a story and it was beautifully written, but it wasn't shared or wasn't liked, right? Then it basically didn't happen. And I mean, it is people want a quick fix and it, I think part of it is, I mean, I had somebody call me yesterday. It was, they sent me an email and they go, I don't like your bill. And so I called them because I know them. And the funny thing was, is I said, well, what do you not like about it? And she started saying all this stuff. And I go, well, that's not who the bill is for. And she goes, well, the header of the bill, I go, did you read the bill? <laughs> and they hadn't even read the bill. And so this is part of the problem, right? We have to slow down. And just take a breath and then read things. And I've always told people this, Chris, if it sounds too good to be true, it's probably not true, right? If it feeds into that confirmation bias of ours, and I'm guilty on the left and the right, right? That we're all guilty of this. So um, the guilty culprit is us. We've been schnookered. And... um, I always tell people, do you see people walk around telling you how great things are? No, everyone's telling you how terrible things are. Why? It's because they what they read and listen to all day long. This is why I want you to listen to History That Doesn't Suck and Chris Meek Show, because these are great things that are happening in your communities, and you can be part of that. How much is social media responsible for the good and bad in campaigns, and what would you like to see done to improve the role of social media? Oh, oh my gosh. I mean, it's what we do with it, right? I mean, I don't blame social media. I blame us. I mean, it's uh, so I don't know. I mean, you want people to be more responsible with it. I do think um, I would I would love for there to be some real real fact checking on some stuff. You know, I mean, you and I both know this. It's like when you get a piece of legislation at the federal level, I mean, the Fed thing, I mean, get rid of all the Christmas tree ornaments that could put, like if you only could have one thing in a bill, think about it. Not all of this. Oh, if this is germane, no, none of this one topic only, that's it. First of all, they wouldn't get very much passed, which is a good thing, right? Smaller government, but then you could have really honest discourse. I mean, a perfect example is when you have legislation that's done that involves military, And you'll have someone saying, oh, they voted against, you know, 
military funding for this. Well, in reality, there were all these other things that if they knew about, they would have hated and would never have wanted their their congressman or woman to vote for. So I just think it's this manipulation of the process. And we're, we are, we are not using critical thinking to ask legitimate questions and you know what, to make phone calls. So like when I hear something that I don't like, I actually call my congressman's office and I go, Hey, I heard about this. Can you guys fill me in on this a little bit more? So I'm a bit more informed and man, they are eager for someone to call them and be nice and not yell at them. And, and this is the other thing I would say, call your own congressman. When you call a congressman from a different state, if I live in Kansas and I'm calling Oklahoma, they don't care what I think in Kansas. They only care what the Oklahomans think. So when people go, you need to be calling this. No, you don't. No, that's that's a waste of your time. And that's a waste of their time. You need to be making the phone calls to the person who cares about who's getting the phone calls. And that's from their own constituent base. So it seems like a lot of the problem in politics today is also the inability or unwillingness of either side to compromise. Years ago, a common refrain was that half a loaf is better than nothing. In other words, some legislation you wanted was better than being ideologically pure and getting nothing. You've been in politics a long time. Why has that changed? Hmm. I wish I knew why that changed. I mean, you said the word compromise. You say that and you're like unpatriotic. And I jokingly say this whenever I travel. Um, I've been married for 30 years and my husband hasn't gotten the memo. I'm always right. And whenever, <laughs> thank you for laughing. M- most generally the men just kind of scowl and the women are like, that's so true. Um, if the closest relationship I have, we don't always agree. Why do I think that with a politician, he's always going to be in alignment with me. And um, I think we have this unrealistic expectation of people about how things should work instead of, you know, on issues, you mentioned hot button issues. It's like, um, I I'd rather, I'd rather get 50% versus nothing. And I've actually had people tell me, no, I'd rather it be zero. And I'm going, well, then you and I are just going to have to disagree. Um, and so I think it's that so adamant. I, I sometimes wonder like, how do things work in your marriage? If you're like that, it's like, it has to go your way. Like how, how many years have you been married? <laughs> um, and, and so often the disagreement isn't even about the end point, right? I mean, I sit and have coffee um, every other week with a couple Democrats, some libertarians and some Republicans. And let me, they are very colorful conversations, but One of the things that I have found in many instances, we actually, let's say kids in reading, we all really care about kids being literate and knowing how to read and understanding that that's a core foundation of how this is done. Where we begin to bifurcate is how we get there. And I'm just kind of like, well, let's use the data. Your way is not working. So let's maybe go back to phonics. Um, It was a great story. It was a gal. She was an education journalist. And the story, it's a six-part series called um, Sold a Story. And it is an overview of what has happened in this country over the past 25 to 30 years on reading in our public school system and private school system, too, for some. And it it will blow your mind 
and you'll go, wow, I saw that with my own kid. And I actually saw it with my own child. And that's when we made our move to a different school. Um, cause I wanted phonics. That makes a difference. Sorry. As citizens, how can we encourage bipartisan cooperation and consensus building among our elected leaders? We have to model it. We, we have to model it. And I, I would say um, it's not always easy. Um, but I think even if you have a, a legislative person or a Congress person who you don't agree with, um, I, I think your interactions with them have to reflect civil discourse, right? Because there may be some place that you can find common ground that you can actually work with them. And I remember when Paul Wellstone and my former boss, Sam Brownback, worked together on a piece of legislation back in the day, right? Paul Wellstone? Paul Wellstone is liberal. But he and, he and then Senator Brownback found common ground on an issue and worked on it. And I think, and I would also say this, Chris, I think this is what's so unfortunate. The voters, the voters are almost condemning their electeds if they do anything with someone on the other side, like thinking they're like the devil themselves. How could you agree with them on anything? And I'm going, folks, that's not how this works. But the people in the middle, there's this middle population, right? That are really trying to figure out what side do I want to go with this time around, right? And so I'm about you, you win elections by addition, not subtraction. And how do I have persuadable speech to let them see, you know what? She's actually not crazy. I kind of agree with her. So that's, that's what you have to have. Well, I always like to go back to the story of President Reagan and then Speaker Tip O'Neill. And mm-hmm. they fought tooth and nail on all kinds of things, but they got stuff done. And then there's the famous story of when the president was shot, the speaker was there and he says, hurry back, you know, come back, Mr. President. So we have to go back to, you know, that sort of mindset, that era, that cooperation. Well, like, like I said earlier, we agree to disagree, but at the end of the day, it's the American people that we're serving, not, not our own personal interests. Yeah. Well, we have to humanize everybody. I mean, you mentioned COVID. I think what was so sad is just the divide that COVID had on families. And some of those things haven't even healed today, which is so unfortunate. And so COVID, you, you saw the splintering, but then you've got politics. It's like when someone goes, well, I'm not going to talk to you because you voted for so-and-so. And I'm going, are you kidding me? That's your neighbor. I jokingly say, if I need eggs, that's where I need to go. Of course, I'm going to be nice to them. <laughs> if I need sugar in the middle of my baking, you know? <laughs> so it's like, it doesn't make sense. Well, I think maybe one more thing just to kind of kick COVID in the teeth again, you know, we were on lockdown, but and all we had was the internet and social media. And so the, the campaign cycle was extremely divisive, as we know, and people had, couldn't talk to anybody. So they would just blurt out whatever their idea was or their thought was in social media. And it just got ugly. And like you said, like my wife, some of her friends would just put the stuff out there and she's like, I can't read what so-and-so is writing anymore. She says, it's just, it's too much. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think it, um, We are living in a society today, which is unfortunate, where you cannot call out bad behavior, right? Where you're condemned for telling someone, you know what, that's not a proper way to speak to somebody. Um, You know, what I try and sometimes do, and I'm going to put my glasses down a little bit because people, when I did this at the office, everybody knows, okay, Kim's about to put on her mom hat. But when I see people say certain things, I'm going to call them out and go, you know what? I'm just really saddened by 
you speaking that tone. And and I'm you know, I'm going to say this. Um, I'm a I'm a Christian. My faith is an important component of who I am. Um, but I'm going to call out people who call themselves Christians who behave in, in ways that I'm going, I don't even identify with you the way you're behaving, right? There's nothing Christ-like. Um, I, I've, I've always learned it's like, is it true? Is it kind? And is it helpful? And if it's, an, if it's not any of those things, right, then you probably need to hold, hold what you're saying. And secondly, I would also say wise counsel I got many years ago. Your words can only be as strong as the relationship that you have with someone. And we have got people who talk to people, strangers, in such ways that, you know, family might forgive you, but the person who doesn't really know you, they're going to go, wow, I'm never talking to that person again. And it's just, do you want to be right or do you want change? And I want change. That's what I want. I want change. Well, speaking of change, you know, to that point, do we need to make major efforts to restore faith in the political system and government, or will we increase public involvement if our elected leaders just show that they can work and get things done? Well, can I say we need all of it? Sure. <laughs> can I say, all of can I, say I, want the whole, I want the whole kit and caboodle? Um, our, our kids are watching. What's the legacy that we're leaving? And um, I had somebody tell me one time, who's a wise sage underneath the dome. He said, you learn who your friends are in politics because who calls you back after you lose your title? And uh, I always jokingly, when I would call some people and they'd pick up and I go, oh my gosh, you're my friend. And they're like, what are you talking about? Kim? I said, well, you still picked up and I can't do anything for you. Um, I, I just think we have to get back to uh, relating to people and get rid of this transactional type of thing that we're seeing in the world today. Um, I know there's people that are like that. That's fine. But I think relationships matter. And when you leave this world, what are people going to remember? No, absolutely. And I hope it's positive relationships. Yep. So you mentioned earlier, you're, you're a Republican National Committee woman, which obviously is a demanding role. What keeps the spark alive in you after all these years of involvement? Oh, my kids, my grandbaby, I, I became a lolly. Um, and it also, it gets me a little it, um, broken up. Um, I just feel so blessed of the country that I live in. And I was raised by folks who were simple backgrounds. They weren't political. Um, we were lower blue collar. Um but they gave me a love of country, a, a strong faith and a work ethic. And the fact that I just was afforded that. And if you, I just, I can look around the world today and see across the globe that not everybody has been as fortunate of that. And so because of that, I'm a steward of that. And so how do I ensure that that is a legacy that is given to generations after I leave this earth? That's, that's what motivates me. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I love that answer. Thank you. Why do you think it is that many people don't really understand the ins and outs of the political process in America? Is it that they don't care or the insiders just made it too confusing and opaque? Uh, well, information is power, right? So it, it's like the people who keep everything close to their chest because that gives them power. It's probably my fault line here is that I'm going to tell you everything you need to know unless I cannot tell you because you know what? I'm going to get tired and when I get tired, I need to be able to pass the baton to somebody. 
So um, I do, I think it's a power thing. That's my personal opinion. It's all about the power. Mm -hmm. Would you provide an overview of the Republican National Committee? You know, how is it structured and what is its role? Oh, thank you for asking me that question. So it's, um, it's really important for people to know the RNC, Republican National Committee, has been around 168 years. It has three functions. It's your presidential debates. It's your presidential convention. And it's fundraising. And when you have the White House, so in our instance, when we had the White House under President Trump, that all those fundraising dollars were disseminated how the president wanted them disseminated. In what states for the campaigns, you know, I always tell people if he had 16 Christmas parties, three Hanukkah parties and whatever, and an Easter egg roll, guess who paid for that? The RNC. That's, that's how that works. When you don't have the White House, then that is disseminated in another way. And I would say our current chair, Ron McDaniel, really believed in a 50-state strategy. The Democrats adopted this how many years ago under Howard Dean? Um, and this 50-state strategy is you can't just focus your energies on swing states. Because guess what? Colorado used to be red, and now it's blue. So when you take for granted those things, so that money gets invested in order to help bring training to ensure that you have really good grassroots people. We don't do television ads. We're uh, we're about ensuring that you've got good training and that you're investing um, in the right places strategically to help you win a presidential campaign, especially that's with what we're going into now, right now. So I loved being, I, I've loved doing it. Any parting words of advice? Show up. The people who make a difference are the people who show up. And um, I'll just say this from personal experience. You don't have to know everything. You just have to be open and available to learn. And I've always told people, the day I stop learning is the day I will not be on this planet anymore. So I am learning something every single day. But make sure you show up. Get out the vote. Absolutely. And we'd love to see you be part of the policy circle and join the clear program. Good plug. That's, another, that's the other way. Kim Borchers, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been an honor, Chris. Thank you so much for the opportunity to visit with you. No, it was a real pleasure. And thank you to our audience, which now includes people in over 50 countries for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details and upcoming shows and guests, Please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on X at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.